If you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab those. We are going to be in Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. And uh, you can put a tab there. We're also eventually going to make our way to the book of John, three chapters later, or three books later, sorry, to John chapter 6. Matthew 7 and John chapter 6. Uh, So today we are starting a a brand new series, a three-part series called Christian Atheist. It is loosely based on a book written by Craig Grishel with the same name. We have two of those books in the library, so if you are an especially fast runner, you might be able to get there first. Otherwise, you'll have to wait or you can buy it on Amazon, but I commend that to you. And as most of you know, we are just finishing up our sermon series on the book of James, in which James has been highlighting to us that there's no such thing as an idle faith, right? A a mere intellectual faith that isn't lived out. When we talk about faith, it is always lived out according to our pocketbooks, our calendars, our relationship, how we conduct ourselves in the public sphere, in the workplace. Nothing remains unaffected by our faith. It is constantly being lived out. And that's the whole message of James, that what we say and what we do are always intricately linked. Even though it is by grace you have been saved through faith, we also know that faith is always accompanied by good works because that is the byproduct of our faith. We're constantly living out our faith. And as we were talking about this as a staff, we were asking ourselves, how can we help the congregation think more fully about what it looks like to connect what we say with what we do? And that brought about this three-part series where we are going to take a bit of an in-depth study in, in looking at the practical ways in which our faith isn't always matching up with what it is that we're actually doing. You know, the term Christian atheist, it it might bear a little bit of offense, doesn't it? it? It seems like it doesn't jive together. Two words that seem oxymoronic, and yet that was the message of James too. He says, I know you believe in God, I know that you are a philosophical Christian, but are you a functional Christian? Is your faith being lived out by way of what you say, by what you do, by where you go, and the influences you try to make for the sake of God's kingdom in this world? Or is it very different? Do you have your privatized faith that is never informed by your actions? How many of you have heard of the terms uh, religious nun? And I'm not talking about uh, women who serve in the Catholic Church. N-O-N-E, religious nun. A religious nun is someone who, on a national survey, when they ask, uh, to what religious denomination are you affiliated with, they would pass all the major religions and go to the very bottom, and they would uh, X the box that says, none. People who do not want to be affiliated with any particular religion. And what we're going to be talking about a little bit is the rise of the nuns, especially in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, You saw on our video that 81% of Canadians say they believe in God. Over four and five. And you also saw in that video that 27% of Canadians say that they are Christians. More than a fourth. 
Now, I want us to compare and contrast that with the number of nuns in Canada. Um, surveys are conducted pretty much every decade, starting in 1930. And in 1930, when this question was asked, to what religious affiliation are, are you a part of, 4% wrote none. 4%. And then in 1940, when they asked the same question, it was once again 4%. And then if you go 1950, 1960, 1970, 1980, there is almost no change between 4 and 5%. And when this really began to change was in the late 80s and the early 90s. And by 1990, that number skyrocketed to 10%. One in ten in Canada began to say that I, I don't affiliate with any major religion. And so a lot of people were asking at that time, is this just a blip in the radar? Um, why is there such a huge jump at this time? Or is it going to go back down? Is there just distrust in religious institutions? And we found out that it was in fact on the rise because by 2010 it doubled again to 20%. So much so that today, in 2019, that number is 27%. Identify as religious nuns. And for those of you who are my age, 35 or under, one in three Canadians identify as not being a part of any religious Group. Now, again, this does not mean that uh, these people are atheists. Uh, whether they believe in God or not believe in God, we, d we don't know that information. They just don't want to be affiliated with any religious group in Canada. They want to kind of stay out of the fray. Some of them might even attend local churches, but they don't affiliate with any religious group. Perhaps you've heard this phrase before, I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. Have you heard that? I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why the sudden rise? Why has it risen by over 600% in the last 40 years? Uh, how many of you, by a show of hands, are 40 years of age or older? Loud and proud. Look at that. That's at least half of you in this room. You have witnessed this rise from 4% to 27%, over 600% increase in your lifetime here in Canada. Why is that the case? If you were to call this a religion, the nuns right now in Canada are the largest religious group in Canada, over 27%. And at the same time, they are also the fastest growing group in Canada. And like I said to you, millennials are even higher. So this trend is relentless. It is going in this direction. So what is happening? Why is this occurring? What has changed? I've been reading a lot of Ravi Zacharias, who is an apologist and a pastor and an author, and in his book, he identifies three things that are happening in our culture and in our context in North America. The first one is this, I put it in your note sheet, secularization. This is the first cultural influence, secularization. I think one of the things that tends to grieve a lot of Christians in U.S. and in Canada um, over the course of their lifetime, especially if you're over 30 or over 40 years old, is the loss of influence and power in our culture. We used to be the major religion and the major influence in our nation, but 
the cultural battle has been lost for a long, long time. We've, we've lost a lot of that influence, so much so I can remember when I was in kindergarten in a public school and in grade one at a public school, we would start every day by praying in Jesus' name. Could you imagine doing that today? And that's just over the course of my lifetime, so much so that in the news over the course of the last six, seven years, even uh, the phrase, God keep our land in the Canadian national anthem is being questioned. You see the increased secularization that is occurring in our nation. Uh, the second thing is privatization. Privatization, this idea that, that you can hold your beliefs, you can believe whatever you want to believe, just don't bring that to bear upon me in the public sphere. Don't bring it to work, don't bring it to the library, don't bring it to your kids' soccer games. Keep that at home. And you can believe whatever you want to believe, just don't bring that here. I don't, I don't want to hear that. I have to work with you. Don't be sharing your faith with me. You know, the one statistic that really shocked me as we were trying to put this little video together for you was that 70% of Christians, not Canadians, 70% of Christians in Canada say that your faith should be completely private. Don't share that with other people. Just keep it private. That's as a result of the cultural influences of our day. And number three, or sorry, just before that, uh, how many of you know who uh, Ray Kroc is? Anyone? The founder of McDonald's. Here's a quote that, that he said on this. He said, I believe in God, family, and McDonald's. And at the office, the order is reversed. That's privatization. Now here's the third cultural influence pluralization pluralization you have a belief that is fine but don't act as though your faith is somehow superior to my faith see how it's different from pluralization it takes it one step further and it says yeah believe whatever you want to believe at home but also don't act as though your religion is the religion it is the faith it is the thing that everyone needs to hear and needs to know about it's just for you keep it for yourself and that stands in the face of what jesus says doesn't it I mean, compare that to the words of Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 6. This is what Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we have the words of Jesus, what we know and believe as God-fearing Christians, that Jesus is the only way in which we may be saved. And then we have our cultural influence that says, keep that to yourself. Don't bring that to bear in the public sphere. And so now we are caught between what Scripture says and what our culture is communicating to us. So here's a bit of a, a rhetorical question. I think it's pretty self-evident. Um, based on these cultural influences... Do you think that the average Canadian is naturally drawn more toward God? Or based on cultural influences and our sin nature, do you think Canadians are, are drawn more away from God? And I think the answer is pretty clear, that, that we are naturally, as a result of our sin nature, drawn away from God. 
And that is the fishbowl that each and every one of us lives in here in Canada. Now, at Gateway, we have a mission. And our mission is this, to help people love and serve Jesus. For those who are far from Jesus, our friends, our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors, those who do not yet know the name of Jesus, we want to bring them into a saving faith relationship with Jesus so that their life can be transformed and changed on account of the gospel so that they can be set free and they could know the good news that we already know to help them love and serve Jesus. But also, for, for those of us who already know Jesus, who are already followers of Jesus, who have already given him the steering wheel of our life, we want to help them in their process of sanctification, growing in likeness, helping them to daily love and serve Jesus, to act more and more like Jesus each and every day. That's our mission statement. That's what we're always looking at as a council and as a staff. And over the course of this series, we're going to be talking about both of these groups. Those who are far from Jesus, and also those who are committed Christians, but there might be areas of their life that don't yet fall under the rule and reign of Jesus. So it's all about Christian atheists. What does that term mean? Here's what I put in your note sheet. I put it this way. A Christian atheist is this, one who believes in God, but acts as though he doesn't exist. One who believes in God, but acts as though he doesn't exist. And again, this is the book of James, right? And I want to suggest to you that there are actually two different types of Christian atheists. The first is this, people who, who would say that they are a Christian but they refuse to submit themselves to the word of God. They would say, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but let's not go overboard. I mean, I want to have my cake and I want to eat it too. I want to enjoy the world that I'm in. I'm not going to go crazy about this. So their life doesn't yet fall under the rule in the reign of Scripture and what God says. And ironically, but not surprisingly, the Apostle Paul was dealing with this in the first century, and here's what he writes in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. You can take note of the passage and look at the context later. He says this, These people claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable and disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Wow. Pretty powerful words. And then the second group of Christians that we're going to be talking even more about in this series are people who are committed to their faith, but there's still certain elements of their life that don't yet fall under the rule and reign of Jesus. Remember what we talked about in James. We said this is about progress, not perfection. And there's still certain elements of your life. As you unearth them, you begin to realize, I haven't yet given this over to Jesus. This is a certain element of my life that I've kind of kept for myself. I have kind of my Christian life and I have my, my secular life and I've yet to give this to Jesus. And we're in that process of trying to daily die to the old self and to put on Christ each and every day. 
And that's what we're going to be talking about a whole lot in this series. So here's where we're going. Here are the three topics that we're going to be looking at over the course of the next three weeks. This week, I believe in God, but I don't know him. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Next week, we're going to talk about the problem of evil and suffering. And the question is going to be this. I believe in God, but I don't think he's fair. I don't think he's fair. And then two weeks from now, Lord willing, we will look at the topic, I believe in God, but I don't like his church. So that's where we're going. This week, I believe in God, but I don't know him. So right on the front end this morning, I want us to have a a proper picture of what it means to know God, not only, but also uh, what it means to know God versus to know about God, what knowing God isn't. So that's what we're going to look at right off the bat here this morning. Here's the first thing that I put in your note sheet regarding what knowing God isn't. Knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. Knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. Imagine for a moment if your marriage was entirely based on factual data about the person to whom you are married. In fact, you don't spend any time together. You just relay information about one another. So you know everything there is to know about your spouse, but you still don't know that person. I mean, this is, this is a great first step for, for those of you who maybe have tried Match.com or ChristianMingle.com or those types of resources. You know what they're trying to do is to match compatibility. They, you know all this information about this person, all this information about this person. You bring them together and maybe it's a good match. That would be a great first date, a great second date, but eventually you go deeper. And you go away from knowing about a person to truly knowing a person. There's a sense of intimacy that comes with that. And yet, my fear is, for a lot of God-fearing Christians, we know a whole lot about God. But the question is, do we truly know Him? Do we know God? And then the second thing I put in your note sheet is believing in God is not the same as knowing God. Believing in God is not the same as knowing God. I think, for example, of what we learned in the book of James, James chapter 2, verse 19, and this passage, it always shocks me. Every time I read it, it shocks me. Here's what James says to this. He says, you believe that God is one? Great! Even the demons believe that. Here's the only difference. They literally shudder at the name of Jesus. That's the kind of faith that they have. They shudder at the name of Jesus. They actually believe without a doubt that there will come a day in which God will make all things new. He will bring all things to himself and he will bring his sheep and they will enter into glory. They will enter into rest. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. And that the evildoer, Satan and his minions, they will be thrown down into eternal fire. They actually believe that, and they shudder. And yet, I think we all know they're not joining us in heaven, right? And my concern, again, is that there are a lot of Christians who don't know the difference between knowing about God and knowing God, and also thinking that uh, one of the ways that, that we get into heaven is believing in Jesus. It's a part of it, 
But it's not all of it. Knowing about God isn't the same as knowing God. Believing in God is not the same as knowing God. So if your Bibles are open, look with me at Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 21. Matthew 7, starting at verse 21. Uh, These are the words of Jesus at uh, the end of his Sermon on the Mount in Galilee, in which he's talking to a, a group of men and women. They believe in God. They even do good things in the name of Jesus. And then Jesus has some pretty radical words for them. Here's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And and in your name, did we not drive out demons? And in your name, did we not perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Circle, highlight, underline. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, these are people, they do a lot of good things for God. They believed in God. And God says, I never knew you. You knew about me, you believed in me, you did good things for me, but you never actually knew me. Depart from me. So now that we know what knowing God isn't, let's explore the topic of what knowing God is because I think this is pretty important that we get right. Here's the first thing I put in your note sheet. To know God is to trust in Christ. To know God is to trust in Christ. Not I met him once, or not we talk from time to time, or I believe in him, I even do good things for him. None, None of those things. Do you trust in Jesus Christ? Do you trust in him for your salvation? Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 6. There's an incredible story Um, in the book of John where where literally thousands of people, more than 5,000 men, they're all gathered together along with their families. So presumably between 10 and 20,000 people and there's no food and God miraculously, Jesus miraculously feeds all of them and has food to spare. And then they want to make Jesus their earthly king and so he retreats and he runs off and everyone's wondering where Jesus went. So the disciples, they get in a boat, they start looking for Jesus and that's when Jesus walks on the water and they think he's a ghost and and finally he says, do not fear, it is me, Jesus. And Peter says, can I come out to you, Lord? And then Peter walks on the water and then he doubts and he falls into the water and Jesus pulls him out and he says, why did you doubt? And they get to the other side, and just think about this. These thousands of people, they go around the entire lake to the other side, and they meet Jesus on the other side. They are hungry to hear more about Jesus. They want to be wherever Jesus is, and they have questions for him. And then we get to John chapter 6, starting at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, which means teacher, when did you get here? 
We've been waiting for you. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. I gave you lunch. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him this question. Get note of this. What must we do to do the works God requires? What what, what must we do, Jesus? What do we have to do in order to attain eternal life? Tell us, we're here, we're hungry, give it to us, Jesus. And take note of Jesus' response. Here's what we have to see. Jesus answered them, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. To believe in the one he has sent. To put your trust in the one with whom God the Father sent into the world. To put your trust in him. See, the Apostle Paul, uh, he echoes the words of Jesus in Acts chapter 20 and 21 when he says this, I have declared that both Jews and Greeks, Jews and non-Jews, everyone, that they must turn to God in in repentance and to have faith in their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, this is an act of trusting in Jesus. You see, God, he declared sin to be sin, and that there was nothing that we could do as a result of our sin nature to save ourselves. Every single one of us in this room, everyone you've known, everyone you will ever know, We have all fallen dangerously short of the standard of the glory of God. And on account of that, we are worthy of his just judgment, which is the wrath of God, eternal separation from God. We are hopelessly lost without Jesus. In and of ourselves, we have nothing that we can give to to get ourselves out of that predicament. And it's not until John 3.16 does all of that change. It's not until God the Father sends his one and only Son into the world who took on flesh, who dwelt among us, and he endured the cross, scorning its shame so that we can be set free. It is all the work of Jesus. And Jesus says right here to this crowd that is hungry for Jesus, he says this, put your trust in the one to whom God the Father sent. Put your trust in me. Do you know about God? Great, so does the vast majority of the human population. Do you really believe in God? Well, that's good too. So do the demons, and they literally shudder at the name of Jesus. Do you do good works for God? Well, that's great too, but I can tell you that there are plenty of people from other religions, maybe even atheists, who would make you just flabbergasted at their philanthropic efforts and their kindness and their good deeds. Good deeds don't save us. Believing in God does not save us. The only thing that can truly satisfy our souls and save our souls is putting our trust in life and in death in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's how I put this in your note sheet if you like alliteration. The ABCs, 
Admit that you are a sinner, that you are broken and in and of yourself, that you cannot save yourself from your predicament. Believe what Jesus did, that he saved you from sin and he brought you back so that you can be set free and be with him in eternity. And C, commit your life wholeheartedly to, to him. Give your life to him. Give him the steering wheel of your life. Let go and give it to Christ. You see, there's a sense of surrender that comes with following Jesus. A Christian is always willing to say, I will set aside my own wants, my own dreams, my own desires, my own passions, my own plans. I will set all those things aside and I will put on Christ's wants and dreams. The posture of a Christian is, here I am, Lord, send me. Do with me as you will, and I will follow. Not my will, but your will. There's a sense of surrender that comes with following Jesus. And when we align our life this way, here's the second thing that happens. I put it in your note sheet. To know God is to obey him. To obey him. To put your trust in something always necessitates obedience. There's a passage of scripture in 1 John chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. I'm going to read it to you in just a moment, but the context of it is we just heard that Jesus is the propitiation for all our sins. There's a word that we never use. The propitiation for all our sins. What does that mean? He is the advocate who appeases the wrath of God. He is the one who stands in our place. When we stand in judgment, Jesus Christ stands in front of me and he says, don't look at the imperfection of Justin, look at the perfection of me and provide that to his account so that he can be set free. And immediately after that, we read these words. Verse three, we know that we have come to know him if... Keyword, if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. That's pretty clear, isn't it? I know God. I believe in God. I might even trust in God, but I just don't want to obey him. I don't want to obey his precepts. I don't want to obey his laws. Some archaic book that was written 2,000 years ago. No, that's not for me. I don't want to follow this. So I believe Jesus is the Lord and Savior of my life. I just don't want to be obedient to his word. And scripture says that does not compute. So, So there's a juxtaposition that comes with following Jesus. We know that good works don't save us. It is only by grace through faith that we have been saved. So we have faith alone, but it is a faith that is never alone. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourself. Even your faith is a gift from God. Do you know what that means? It means that even after Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins... If it were not for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, no one would choose Jesus. We would all spit in his face. Even our faith is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
So then we're asking ourselves that question. Yeah, but Justin, what about 1 John? What about the works component? Where does, where does that find its place in this passage? Well, that's verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good works will always follow our faith. Always, always, always. So some of you here this morning, perhaps you are in a place where you would say, I believe in God, but I don't know him. I believe in God, but I feel far from him. And could it be because you have not yet wholeheartedly surrendered your life to Jesus? Is it possible that there's still elements of your life that have not yet fallen under the rule and the reign of Jesus? You are willing to treat Jesus as your Savior, but as of up to this point, you've been unwilling to make Jesus your Lord. And there's a difference, isn't there? Jesus, you've saved me from sin, and I'm going to take all that, but I don't want to submit my life to you. And may I humbly suggest maybe that's the reason why your faith feels so empty, why you feel so far away from Jesus. Sure, you've prayed the Lord's Prayer. You went to a Christian school, maybe. You attended VBS and GEMS and cadets and youth group. I could go on. Uh, your Facebook profile reads Christian. You grew up in a Christian home. You do good deeds for Jesus. You read your Bible. You pray. You, you do all these kinds of things. But you've yet to answer my fundamental question. Will you surrender every aspect of your life to Jesus? Will you give him the steering wheel of your life and not just segments of it? So for some of you, perhaps this strikes a chord. And if it does, maybe, just maybe, you would be willing today to pray this prayer with me. Maybe you would pray something like this. Jesus, I've believed in you for a long, long time. You've been my Savior, but I have not been treating you as my Lord. I have yet to put my full and complete trust in you. I have yet to willfully submit my life to you. And so no more. No more half-hearted obedience. No more Christian life whenever it's convenient. And so I give you my life. I surrender my life to you. I choose to trust and to obey. Help me to follow you in obedience and love. Amen. And perhaps for some of you this morning, you have decided you would put your trust in him, you've surrendered your life to him, but there are still moments where, where you feel far from God. And to you, here's what I would suggest, the third point in your note sheet. To know God, you must spend time with him. To know God, you must spend time with him. We know this in our earthly relationships, right? You want a, a healthy, vital marriage? Spend time with your spouse. You want a healthy relationship with your kids or with your parents? Spend time with them. You want healthy relationships with friends? Spend time with them. 
It is fundamental to our relationships that we spend quality time with them. Well, the same is true with our Heavenly Father. We call these spiritual disciplines, and I'm going to give you the big three. There's more, but these are the big three. Number one, we must have a devotion to the Word of God. Number two, we must be fully devoted to relationships with other Christians. And number three, we must be fully devoted to prayer. We must be devoted to these three things if we want to grow in Christ-likeness. And it will take chosen, intentional self-discipline in order to do this. It will be a grace-infused effort, but something that is worthy of our effort and our time. And so... I'm sure in in a room of this size, there may be some of us here this morning who have not yet given Jesus the steering wheel of our life. Up to this point, we have yet to say, Jesus, I'm willing to follow you. I'm willing to obey you, to acknowledge you as the Lord and Savior of my life. And maybe, just maybe, today is the day that you make that decision. And for some of you here, you've been following Jesus for a long time, and yet you still feel like, I don't really know him. I don't, I don't really know Jesus. And may I suggest to you, maybe, just maybe, it's because even though you've prayed the Lord's Prayer, by way of your actions, you have yet to prioritize Jesus in your life. And maybe, just maybe, today is the day where you say, no more, I am going to make Jesus the ultimate priority in my life. I am going to surrender my life to Jesus. My life will come under the allegiance of Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, today is the day that you make that decision. Because I think, at least based on paper and what I've learned over the course of the last weeks in preparation for this series, there seems to be a lot of apathy that is happening in the Christian world in North America. A lot, a lot, a lot of it because we have such a tug and a pull based on our culture and our sin nature. And you put those things together and it makes an incredible chemical compound. But by the power of the work of the Holy Spirit, he can draw us to himself. It will take grace-infused effort. Make Jesus the priority of your life. Would you pray with me? Our Holy Father and our God, we thank you that you don't leave us to ourselves, but you stoop down, sending your one and only Son into the world who took on flesh to bear our sin and our shame. And not only that, even after Jesus' ascension on high, you sent your Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us. We ask, Heavenly Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would continue that good work that you have begun in us until it reaches its completion. Continue this good work, Lord. May we have the willingness to surrender our whole life to you in humble obedience. Lead us and guide us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.